Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. From ABC, this is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. Hello. Today, we're going to talk about a massively useful acronym, which can be deployed both on the meditation cushion and in your free-range living. The acronym is RAIN, R-A-I-N. And rather than trying to explain it myself, I will leave that to my guest today, who has become one of RAIN's primary proponents. Tara Brock is an author, therapist, and meditation teacher. She has a PhD in clinical psychology. She founded the Insight Meditation Community of Washington, and she's written a whole bunch of books, including her latest, which is called Radical Compassion. We first posted this interview in January 2020, shortly after that book came out. In the conversation, we talk about what RAIN is and how to apply it in many areas of your life, including relationships. We talk about a Buddhist list called the Eight Worldly Winds. And we talk about whether most people harbor a suspicion that there's something fundamentally wrong with us. But we start and end with a conversation on a touchy subject. In my first book, 10% Happier. I poked fun, I thought gently, at Tara. It turns out it didn't go down that well with her, although I didn't really know that until this chat. I really respect how warm and open she was during this rather tricky discussion. Stay tuned until the very end, though, when we fully wrap it up. One thing before we dive into the episode, we would really appreciate it if you could take just a few minutes to do us a solid by answering a brand new survey about your experience with this podcast. We care deeply, as I I think you know, uh, about our listeners, and we're always looking for ways to improve. So uh, please go to 10percent.com forward slash survey. We'll put a link in the show notes. Thank you in advance. Okay, here we go now with Tara Brock. Nice to see you. And you. I think this is the second time we've met. The first time we met, in my memory, was backstage at some meditation event. And I remember being a little hesitant because I saw you there, and I thought, I made fun of her a little bit in my book, and I didn't know how it was going to go. But then you gave me a big hug. So uh, where are we with that? Are you mad at me for teasing you a little bit? It was actually a really great experience for me because— you know, every it's fame and disrepute, and you know, and you made fun of me some, and you also appreciated the thing that That's most right. mattered to me, yeah. which is the practice of rain. Yeah. And um, I figured, you know, I can survive this. <laughs> well, I've talked about this a lot on the show, so my apologies to folks who've had to hear me hold forth on this too much. But I got a three. Do you know what a three sixty review is? Have you ever heard of it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I got one, and basically all the people in my or many of the people in my life anonymously commented on my strengths and weaknesses. And one of the weaknesses was being judgmental. You, I think, were really an early victim of mine on this score in the meditation world. And there was a message for me in it, too, because I'm basically out to wake up and be able to present things in a way that are going to reach people. And I suspected for you my way was had too much of a... um, Oh, kind of ooey-gooey, too sweet flavor. And I realized, oh, there's going to be a mess of people like Dan that that's the way they receive it. And I think as we keep growing, we just get more flexible in ways we present things. So there was room for that. (laughs) 
Yes, I agree. I think, yeah, you have a way of talking about this that works for hundreds of thousands of people. My way of talking about it or thinking about it or acting it out in the world is very different. And that's the importance of having many folks out there talking about the Dharma. It really that's where is. I land on this. Me too. Me too. It's really exciting to me, actually. And it's exciting when the dialogues happen because basically we're free when we all stretch. Yeah. Say more about that. Yeah. The more, um, first of all, as a teacher, the more flexibility I have in how I present things and the more sensitive I am to the different ways people receive things, the more effective I can be. And as a practitioner, for instance, this morning I was talking to my husband about a book that right now I'm rereading for the 20th time, and it's I Am That by Sri Narsargadatta. And it's a book about non-dual reality, about seeing how really constantly looking at how am I getting identified right in this moment, like really seeing past uh, the coagulation of self and recognizing, okay, I'm not this particular personality, I'm not this body, and, and recognizing a larger sense of beingness. And so we were talking about that, and, I, and then I just said, you know, that is fantastic when my mind is quiet enough, but if I'm caught in some anxiety, for me to say, oh, I'm not this anxiety, actually is a subtle way of pushing it away. Mm-hmm. And what's more important is for me to feel the wave of anxiety and in some way say, okay, this belongs. You know, this is part of, this is a wave in the ocean, you know, and to actually feel it. And in opening to it and not resisting, the identification actually dissolves. So the pathway taught in the book that I'm riveted by right this moment isn't the pathway at any given moment, and nor will it work for many people when they're stuck in a certain way. So it's just having that, keeping the whole domain of practice fresh. So in any given moment, there's a an intuitive way to respond to what's arising now that actually deepens freedom and not going by rote really is is actually what works in the most deep ways. So you talked about implicitly a change that I've seen you make in my observation of you as a teacher since the first time I saw you speak until reading your most recent book. So in the teaching of RAIN, R-A-I-N, which we're going to walk through in detail, the first time I heard you speak, the N stood for non-identification. Now you teach it as nurture, which in your last answer, I think I heard you say that nurturing leads to the non-identification. If you can be cool with whatever's coming up, and you mentioned anxiety, and you've talked about personally dealing with anxiety in your own life, if you can be cool with the anxiety, if you can, you know, be warm in the face of this unwelcome visitor in your own mind, that can ultimately, I, if I'm hearing you correctly, and you'll correct me if I'm wrong, lead you to seeing, oh yeah, this is just a visitor. It isn't me. That's exactly right. And if we bypass the nurturing, and it's not like every time something comes up, we have to put our hand on our heart and offer all sorts of phrases of self-compassion. But there are times that bringing a kindness and a warmth to what's there softens the resistance in a way that we're embodied and yet more spacious. And if we skip over it, if we go too quickly to saying, oh, this isn't me, I'm not identified, it's actually 
a subtle kind of dissociation. We're not really embodied. So the more full freedom is to be with the wave and realize your oceanness through the process of being with the wave, which for most of us takes some quality of kindness or compassion. We're getting ahead of ourselves by getting to the end of rain before we've even done the R. But I just want to I want to get back to our discussion about my first encounter with you and the way I wrote about it. You used a phrase that comes right out of the Buddhist canon of fame and disrepute. And I didn't want to let that go by without letting you talk about it. Because just to remind listeners if they've lost the context, you said when you were reading what I wrote about you, you had this thought of, oh, this is fame and disrepute. This is part of and you'll correct me because you're the Buddhist teacher here, but in my understanding of Buddhism, they, they talk about this thing called the eight winds. And I've always been fascinated by this because it's pain and gain and, and loss, fame and infamy, and I don't know, there's a bunch of them, you know. But the piece on fame and disrepute is a really interesting one to me because we are all pretty conditioned to want to look good, to get approved, yeah. to be liked. I mean, it's so deep in us. As social creatures, we are rigged to connect love with being impressive, achieving, and so on. And so how we look to others really matters. And so for me to be scanning my own uh, psyche and seeing how when people love what I'm teaching and tell me how I'm changing their lives, I, you know, there's a swelling up and a feeling good. And just to note that and also to notice that some people are giving me feedback of using a poem that was incredibly insensitive to a part of the population are teaching something that for a traumatized person actually could make things worse. And then the sinking, the contracting, and to really become awake and free in the midst of that inflating, deflating is absolutely essential for the ride if we're going to find any real peace. Well, what I like about describing them as the eight winds, and yeah. I can't remember all eight you get, of them. You get blown by them. You well, get blown it, around. It's also impersonal. The yeah. wind isn't you. Yeah. The, there are times when you're going to have fame. It can be big fame like a truly famous person or just sort of a good reputation in your circle of friends. And there are going to be times when you have a bad reputation. And it's going back to your thing about non-identification. Exactly. Uh, and that, to me, there's freedom in viewing things that way, I think. It's the reason I, I often talk in an evolutionary way also, is that we take so personally all the different emotions that are absolutely wired into our nervous system and have an intelligence. And yet, you know, we feel fear and it's my fear and I feel too much fear rather than realizing we'd be brain dead without fear and that every single organism on the planet has a version of it. So it's the same thing with the worldly winds, whether it's gain or loss, fame or disrepute or feeling fear or anger. They're not personal, but it takes a lot to pay attention in a way that gets it. I mean, one of the things I'll often do in a um, workshop is I'll have people sit in a circle and write down uh, three things they're really afraid of and fold the paper up and put it in the center and we'll mix the pile around. And then people just pick from the pile and they just read them out loud and everybody just listens as each person's reading. And the realization that comes out of that really is, I'm just getting, it's not my fear, it's the fear. That sense of it's just not so personal, which is why I really feel like we need to do these practices with each other. Because it's not until we start 
sharing what's going on that we realize that what we've been taking so much as mine, I, self, is really part of our shared inheritance. Okay, so I'm going to further delay the diving into rain because you've done, I, I suspect this is a habit of yours. You say interesting things, and then I'm, I'm going to force to follow up on it. <laughs> um, doing the practices with each other. I can imagine in my, you know, endless skills of empathy, that's sarcastic, um, <laughs> for my audience, that yeah. some people out there listening are thinking, well, you know, I meditate on my own. I listen to some app or I, I have a practice that I, you know, it's been part of my life, but I'm in my living room doing this. I'm not doing it with other people. So does that mean I'm doing it wrong? No. When I say doing the practices, in a way I'm saying doing the path. And, and what I mean is I meditate alone many days of the week. Sometimes I meditate with my husband. But it's more sharing the unfolding with each other, sharing what's happening, being vulnerable, real with both the, you know, what were the insights and also the blocks. And that's what enlarges us. And I'll add oh, something. Yes, and this please. is going to be, again, um, tossing our sequence completely. <laughs> it's crashing it a little <laughs> bit. But one of the beauties of RAIN is that more and more people are doing RAIN partners, mm. where they're doing RAIN together, which I think just catalyzes a whole other level dimension of waking up. So I can speak more to that at some point, and I can direct people to the website. But... We have people in our training programs. We have people in our local community, people actually all over the globe right now, are in pairs doing RAIN partners, and there's different levels of how you can do it, and finding that, first of all, it keeps them with the practice. It's like when you do something with somebody else, you're more accountable. You kind of go through the whole process rather than drifting and dropping it and makes a kind of container that's safe and friendly and conducive. And then in the sharing pieces, it actually, when you start naming out loud something that's happening, you become more aware of it. It brings it more into the light of awareness. So that's another piece of practicing together. I mean, the most obvious is go to classes, have small spiritual friends groups or clusters that you meditate with. But more, it's do the path together, and do some meditations together. I think interpersonal meditations are part, they're going to be the wave of the future because we spend a whole lot of time getting more intimate with our own heart and mind, but we don't practice intentionally how we speak with each other. So when I'm talking to you right now, am I actually in my body? And when you speak, am I really listening, putting down my ideas and taking it in. And when I speak, am I speaking from as much of a place of heart and presence as I can? So we don't practice that that much. It's hard. I've done some of this work, dyad work, where you sit yeah. and have to stare into somebody's eye and then like a death stare. Um, uh, uh, it's hard. I, the resistant ones call it a death stare. Yeah, I'm the resistant one to everything. You just scale that through the rest of this conversation. Um, yes, it's really, really hard. And yet, actually, I did find that it somehow reduced for me this sort of sitting there and then the aforementioned death stare with some stranger I actually think the first time I ever did it was you made me do it at uh, yeah. at this event I went to that yeah. I ended up writing about. And I was so mad at you. I didn't know you, but I was really mad at you for making me stare at this nice young woman who was sitting next to me who I didn't know. But over time, as I've been in other programs where I've been forced to do the dyad work, it does kind of 
whittle away a little bit in my case. I'll just speak for myself at the inherent awkwardness that I've felt in myself of dealing with other people because you're really just mainlining wordless connection. That's exactly right. And it builds your tolerance almost for the discomfort. Yes, that's right. It's affect tolerance. It's really being able to stay present when it, and, and not have it matter so much that it's uncomfortable. And then you start sensing, once you relax a little, you can start looking and seeing vulnerability. You can kind of see the vulnerability you were too busy in your mind no, to notice. And you can see the goodness, mm-hmm. which is what's so beautiful. And see the sameness. You can start sensing that that which is looking out through your eyes is the same basic awareness as mine. And that that kind of catapults you into another place. But just to say, when I talk about RAIN partners, that's actually not an um, eye-gazing process. People do it on the phone, and they do it online, and they do it in all different ways. It's more um, has to do with an, go, moving from an inner kind of contemplation to sharing to inner to sharing. All right, well, let's dive into how that works in a minute, but let's finally walk through RAIN. As discussed, I had never heard of RAIN before I heard you speak at an event at, here in New York City, and it really is a profoundly useful schema. I don't know, acronym, whatever you want to call it. So can you just talk through your history? How did you – I think it was Michelle McDonald who came up with it, the great teacher Michelle McDonald who's never been on the show. She came up with the acronym and then Michelle came it. up with the acronym oh probably 199 early 1990s and I began using it then and loved it and both for myself and students there were a couple of blocks or problems that people would run into and talk to me about and one of them was that they said, well, what is not identification? Like, how do you, how do you non-identify? Mm. And I had to explain that non-identification is actually the fruit of what happens. It's like you pay attention in certain ways on purpose, and then the fruit of that is this realization of, oh, I'm not that. So it's not a doing. So that motivated me to shift the acronym around a little. But the other piece was that they couldn't really when they were investigating, they couldn't really get in touch with fully in their body with what was going on, and it really needed the nurturing to fully embody it. And so compassion was the missing piece. You know, if, if we think of awareness as having the two wings of mindfulness or seeing clearly what's here and compassion, holding it with kindness, we need to bring in that wing of kindness, not just as a kind of background mood, but in an explicit way because we are so programmed to actually be turned against ourselves. So it does need to be explicit. So one of the, um, there's an attachment therapist, uh, Luis Cozzolino, and he says that it's not the survival of the fittest, it's the survival of the nurtured. Hmm. Survival of the nurtured. Yeah. And so learning a pathway to self-nurturing, and it doesn't have to be I am sending messages to myself to nurture myself or I'm right now touching my heart. It could also be the pathway to nurturing could be by imagining and sensing nurturing from some larger source. But finding some pathway to feeling nurtured helps to actually soften the self-identity. It actually allows us to relax and open and sense a larger belonging. 
I'm feeling a little bit like a failure as an interviewer because we still haven't done the R of rain. Uh, we've talked so a we'll lot about So we'll walk through the it. Okay. So that was this is the background to how come I shifted the letters. But here's gotcha. here's how the letters go. The R is recognize, and that simply means that when you're in some way in reaction and suffering, you pause and notice. Okay, something's going on. It's an attentional. Okay, something's here going on. What's going on here? So you recognize what's happening. And the A is allow, which means rather than what we typically do, which was we go into fight, fight, freeze. In other words, we in some way try to fix it, change it, ignore it, judge it. We do something. It's like a pause where we say, okay, just let this be here right now. I use the language of yes, saying yes to what's right here. Not yes, I like it, or yes, I want it to always stay here But yes, this is the actuality of the moment. This is truth-telling. So yes, let's let it be here. That's recognize and allow. That creates enough of a pause or a space to actually deepen attention. Then we kind of make the U-turn and we begin to investigate. I see. So you have to kind of pause the action and then you make the U-turn. That just means instead of Moving into the reactivity, you go from that pause to, okay, so what's really happening? If recognize is the first step, the third step, which is investigate, is saying, okay, what's really going on? Let's recognize even more deeply. And do you imagine people doing this on the fly, like in the middle of a conversation, if I start feeling that I am anxious as I'm talking to you, would I do the rain while I'm maintaining the conversation with you? And is this also a formal meditation practice? Both, Both? Yeah. yeah. And so once you've kind of got in your cells the sense of the how it works, and it can become very, very like a light rain. I feel like I'm doing a light, light rain, rain a lot, yeah, yeah. and it's an informal practice you can weave through the day at any moment, just noticing and letting be what's happening, but just sensing, okay, feeling it here, okay, be kind, and then just sensing a little bit of a shift, and you move on. So it can be quick. So now there's a few things with the investigating that are always misunderstood and really important to know. And that is, it's not cognitive, or at least 98% it's not cognitive. 98% it's really getting somatic. It's You're investigating and bringing the attention to feeling the throat, the chest, the belly, you know, how is, how is this experience expressed in my body? So the investigation isn't oh, I bet my mother's always saying mean things to me because X or Y happened in her personal history. The investigation is, oh, what is anxiety actually like? It's a tightening in my chest. That's right. What is this? How is it showing right in this moment? Now, there are some um, skillful ways that can support that that are investigating. Like if I'm in a really bad mood, I'll sometimes ask myself, well, what am I believing right now? And generally... I find, oh, I'm believing that I've failed in some way, that I'm falling short, that I'm not okay, I'm not enough, or I'm believing that somebody else isn't liking me, whatever. But seeing that, bringing that into consciousness actually helps get back in touch more directly with what's happening somatically. So that can be a useful piece. Another part of investigating I like is, let's say I'm feeling anxious in this interview and I pause enough to say, well, how is that anxiety really expressing even in my face? You know, if I could, 
where's and just let my face take the tightness of the feeling and let my body kind of so when I'm guiding people in workshops I'll actually get them to sculpt it because we are so sculpt it yeah with their bodies and their face like actually let their bodies and face take the full expression of the mood they're feeling and the reason why Dan is that we're most people are most of us are pretty dissociative from our bodies and it takes some intentional extra kind of fine-tuning to really draw the attention fully to what's going on. And if there's been trauma, it's really, really hard. And so there might just be, instead of going into the body, there might, with trauma, I really encourage people to go right into nurturing, to not even do the sequence of RAIN, to nurture first and find the pathways to self-soothing, to safety to, you know, get the parasympathetic going and calm down before they actually do the, the real somatic investigation. And that can be for weeks or months. Hmm. It's not that useful if there's trauma to go right into investigating. Why not? Because you can re-traumatize. Unless there's sufficient stability and resilience and safety going in right to where the feelings are, can overwhelm, and then you just have another round of feeling powerless and unable to deal with it. So you want to take the time to do other styles of meditation that are more uh, loving-kindness, the nurturing domain, in order to build up enough sense of resourcefulness to then do the kind of investigating and unpacking that RAIN does. Now I think we find ourselves back in order on N. So we did done, it. We've we done, did it. We've done, uh, I, I, I think there's a reason energetically, uh, intellectually, we kind of leaned into N early and are now coming back to it because it is so important. So we started with recognize, just seeing clearly what's happening, A, allowing or accepting. Yep. That's, it's not saying I'm psyched that I feel anxious right now. You're saying this is the truth. I is investigating. Again, that's not a cognitive process most of the time, although – as you described, one can skillfully use thought to direct you to the direct experience, but it is more of a, a sort of feeling what's actually happening in your body. And then we land at N, nurturing. And there's a couple of final pieces on investigating that actually set the grounds for nurturing that are really powerful that I like to teach about, which is there's certain questions you can ask yourself like, how does this place want me to be with it right now? Like if I'm feeling hurt or if I'm feeling shame or I'm feeling anger or whatever, how does this place want me to be with it? How does the anger want me to be with it? Yeah, or how does the fear or the shame want me to be with it? Or, or another way of saying is what does this place need? What does it need right now? Because nurturing is really a response to vulnerability. And when we investigate and finally contact, we're, we're vulnerable, where we're afraid, whatever it is, if we really feel it, there's a natural upwelling of tenderness. And that really is the dynamic of compassion, which is compassion's a response to feeling the vulnerability. So investigating gets you in touch with the vulnerability, and those questions help you do that. What does this place really need right now? And often I invite people to ask that and put their hand on their heart at the same time, the kind of thing that would have freaked you out a number of years ago and still, still might get you like that. <laughs> um, so for the part of the population that is drawn to it, 
you're actually beginning to create a kind of nurturing atmosphere even when you ask that question. And then that question will invite forward what's needed. And for one woman, I wrote about this in the book, who is really afraid of a CEO and her organization, and she'd go into meetings and have brain freeze. And she was a really qualified, brilliant woman, but his temperament intimidated her. And so I had her doing rain before she'd go into the meeting. And she got to that anxiety, and she felt it. She felt the clench in her chest. And then she asked, well, what do you need? And the anxiety basically responded, I need you to be okay that I'm here, Mm -hmm. just to let it be okay that I'm here. So she just sent the message, you know, it's okay. This belongs. It's okay. This belongs. And there's a real power to the message, this belongs. Because in the moment that we say this belongs, it's metaphorically we become the ocean that has room for the waves rather than another wave fighting a wave. You know, this belongs, creates just the space we need. It wasn't like the anxiety dissolved. It was more that there was just more space and she wasn't as in the grip. That was her end, just to send that message. So there's a lot of different ways that nurturing emerges. For some people, it does include you know, one hand on the heart or two hands on the heart. Some people put their hands on their cheeks. For others, and it can be a combo, there's a set of words that really are the message that a part of us most needs to hear at that time. For me, at times when I've, everything I've tried in terms of self-nurturing hasn't worked, I finally get down to this place of please love me. I'm just kind of asking the universe, please love me. And there's a sense in some way of something larger, some presence that is compassionate and tender and washing through me. So it's when I get very vulnerable and call out that I can feel that. And then I realize that that presence wasn't outside me. It just appeared to be outside me. It's just part of my own heart. But at the time of being stuck, I needed to call out. So sometimes for some people, just kind of in some prayerful way, asking for nurturance helps. Some people have a friend they'll imagine holding them. So there's many, many different ways. But the nurturing tends to soften, as we were talking about, in a way that we actually feel um, enlarged, no longer hooked or identified. So if it was anxiety, I'm not the anxious self anymore. I'm kind of that space of tender wakefulness that is aware of and kindly towards the anxiety. That is what I call after the rain. And I put that in quotes because people tend to, after they do the end, just go back into whatever's next in their lives, but not notice the shift that's happened. And for on the path of waking up, noticing the shift in identity, this is where non-identification comes in, actually deepens our familiarity with who we really are beyond an egoic self. So after the rain are those moments when we just notice, oh, who am I right now? You know, it's not no longer stuck in that small hooked place. And there's usually some quality of spaciousness or openness or tenderness, more freedom. So I invite people to pause and rest in that and just 
really get familiar with it. That's kind of the instructions in, in the Tibetan tradition is when you touch a moment of freedom, just get familiar with it. All right. So there was a lot there on the end part. Uh, I, have a, I have a bunch of questions. I'm just trying to order them correctly in my head. One of them is, so you talked about some of the ways we can operationalize the nurture part of RAIN. What about for somebody like me who does have a – it doesn't resonate much with me, the idea of putting my hand on my heart, although I have Spring Washam, who's a great teacher who's been on the show a couple times, mutual friend. She's had me do that before, and I'm embarrassed to admit it did kind of work. But I was in the middle of a deep – I was on the, like the seventh day of a meta retreat at that point, so it's not – it's a little bit different from my regular life. But generally speaking, the I think I'm not alone in feeling like the, putting my hand on my face or my heart or whatever doesn't – immediately jump out at something that I want to do and the asking the universe to please love me too doesn't land for me as something that I would do. So what? how could I do the end part of RAIN? So then I would ask you, when in your own experience have you found that there is something that you pay attention to that warms you, tenders you, softens you? Toward myself? In any way, like in with any person, in any situation, with nature, with, you know, is there anything that when you think of, it just tenderizes you? Yeah, uh, my son, our cats, yeah, animals generally. Yeah, those types of things I do, f- to put it in the language you used before, I do see the vulnerability. And then I think the compassion, another way of saying that would be just the desire to be helpful arises uncontrived. That's right. So that's an example of how connecting with vulnerability brings your nurturing towards the world around you. Now, what happens when you're cut off in some way from feeling good about yourself? I mean, do you have times that you get caught in self-judgment and you get turned on yourself? Do I have times? I would say that I have occasional <laughs> times when, <laughs> when I'm <you're> not. not. <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay. So when you get hooked, what helps you? What helps you unhook? Rain. You know, I mean, which you taught me 10 years ago. I mean, I think it's become second nature now. But I've been doing it the way you taught me low these many years with non-identification. Now, I have to say, I don't have a history of trauma that I'm aware of. Right. So it. It's not triggering for me to go into non-identification instead of nurture. But maybe there's a certain coldness in that, too, which is so also— let, So let's look at that for a moment. Who is it? Is it your son or is there anyone else that when you feel them loving you, you can let it in? Yes, definitely my son. Your son. When How, the cats love me, it's a little annoying. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I'm trying to work and they're jumping on my desk. Uh, yeah. My wife, my parents— Okay, so, and how old's your son? Five. Okay, so when you see your son and you're, he's loving you and you're letting it in, what's he doing? How close is he? What's the expression on his face? What actually lets you feel love and actually receive it? We chase each other around a lot, and he gets a mischievous look like, you can't catch me, and then I go catch him. Uh-huh. So, yeah, something like that. Or... We, in order to tire him out, I make him do wind sprints in the hallway of our uh, before bed. And so sometimes we'll be running up down the hallway together, and I'll see that he'll look up at me with a look of like, wow, this is awesome. This is totally fun. Yeah, yeah. So if you, even right now, just 
and I can tell you you were accessing it some as you were mm-hmm. visualizing it, see him looking up at you and just so appreciating the fun and aliveness and just the good stuff you're bringing into his life. And how does that feel? Very good. Yeah. So what you would do just to translate this is that if you're feeling really stuck and you're feeling down on yourself and you've done the investigating and you want to nurture, you might in some way imagine and sense in the background your son and just that energy and just let that add more information to your heart. It's like when we're down on ourselves, we're kind of our attention is very narrow. It's very fixated on what's wrong. And that's like widening the lens to something that's really good and letting it in. So you're just adding a certain dimension of loving kindness into the mix to soften where you've hardened against yourself. I think that's great. That I could access. That I have no block with that. Here's the thing, Dan, is that most of us actually have trouble letting in love. Most of us have very limited number of people that we can even begin to let it in. And even the people we think we let it in, we don't, in a very physical, somatic way, actually let our body know, get washed over. It's just not what we do. And yet, when we're really hardened, that's exactly what we need. I mean, the issues are in the tissues. (laughs) They really are, you know. And, you know, for most of us in our parenting, there was some, we might have had great parents, but there was some lack of really being seen or really being unconditionally, tenderly embraced. Like, and we all need that. So to the degree there was a lack, there's a kind of spiritual reparenting that we're doing with meditation that actually helps us to process that so we can inhabit our wholeness And so we each need to find where in our life is there even a tendril of what we needed to experience that we can build on because whatever you practice gets stronger. So for me, if I, you know, 10 times a day imagine that washing through of love from some formless being or you 10 times a day sense through your son or your wife just kind of letting in, there's something our neurons learn about. There's new pathways that grow, and we have quicker access to it. And in a sense, then, by channeling that look my son gives me when we're running down the hallway, I'm teaching myself through him how to provide this for myself. That's exactly right, because we're using a bridge. I mean, in some way, we're using wherever it comes through in the universe as love. We're using that. But ultimately, it's inside us and everywhere, and we're just trying to access loving-kindness in as direct a way as we can. I'm going to see if I can unpack that, because I think what you just said is interesting. I want to see if I can restate it. Because part of me was thinking, well, if I'm using my son's love for me, which is (laughs) not always there, because a lot of the times he thinks I'm annoying. Um, But in those moments where it's really obvious, so yeah, there's a lot of love in the room or in the hallway right now. I was thinking, part of me was thinking, well, that's external. That's not me having love for myself. But you're, I think, saying, well, love is just sort of a a force in the universe. However you get it into your tissues is fine. Right. And there's no self-loving a self, really. I mean, it's we're just accessing love, and it appears to come through. Our minds make it that it's your son or yourself, or I might call the 
the you know beloved of the universe, and it's all just those are ideas. The thing we know is that there's some tenderness that's vast. That's really my sense is the source of who we are that we're coming home to. And so use whatever pathway you use because you're not going to get hooked on those images of your son. In fact, the more you, as you use that, you'll find yourself receptive to love from many sources. And, you know, here I can do something that'll totally get to you, which would be, you know, I, I walk in the mornings and I'll often pause and see a tree and say, we are friends. I'll just use the phrase, we are friends. And it brings the reality of an affinity with, I just read The Overstory, which was fantastic. It's a Pulitzer Prize winner about trees and connectedness. But, And I do it now with people. I do, you know, a clerk at the supermarket. I'll just mentally say, we are friends. And all of a sudden, the reality of our interbeing becomes more evident. So I figure use whatever we can to open ourselves to something that's always and already here, but in our stress and our tightness, we don't notice. Comment and a question. The comment is, a quote is coming to mind from a previous guest on the show. I don't even know if we've aired her interview yet, but this person was telling me about something that a teacher said to her when she was complaining about how cheesy loving kindness practices. And the teacher said, well, if you can't get comfortable with cheesiness, you can't be free. Which I think is really a... For me, that really lands. Um, the question is, you said something like love is the source of who we really are. What does that mean? <laughs> I knew that wouldn't go by <laughs> on question. <laughs> well, my experience is that when I'm not caught up thinking about a self, when I'm not inside thoughts about a self, there's a, a changing flow of experiences that's happening and the sense of what it's all happening in is an awareness that is tender. In other words, it's awareness, it's pure awareness, but when that, and I'll, I'll use the ocean wave metaphor, when that ocean perceives particular waves, the natural response is tenderness. So that when I'm free from self-occupation, there's a natural love or compassion towards whatever is experienced. And that's what I mean by the source. It's when, when we're not identified in a fear-based way, there's a pure awareness that naturally responds with love. Much more of my conversation with Tara right after this. This show is brought to you by BetterHelp. I got to tell you, I feel so much better when I talk about my anxiety instead of keeping it bottled up. There's an expression that I first heard from the great researcher and also Zen practitioner Robert Waldinger, never worry alone. Our temptation many times is to keep it bottled up, but the data really show that the people who do the best in life, who live the longest and are the happiest, have strong relationships with people with whom they can talk about whatever's going on in their lives. And for me, therapy is part of that. If you're thinking of starting therapy, you might give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash happier today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash happier.
As they say at Amica, empathy is our best policy. Whether you need auto, home, or life insurance, they're ready to help you protect the things that matter most to you. They're a mutual company, customer-owned, in service to you. Amica representatives are here when you need them, and you can take comfort knowing a real person will be there on the phone to take care of you because the greatest measure of their success is your satisfaction. You have a PhD in psychology. psychology. Is this feeling you have in any way backed up by psychological research uh, or anything about the mind? No, and I wouldn't go at it in that way because it's really an experiential path. And all we can talk about is we're talking about now like what is absolute truth and there's not going to be science or research that's going to point to, you know, what's the very nature of our beings. I can point to the perennial philosophy that underlies most spiritual and mystical and contemplative practices points to a oneness uh, that it's not like the mind is in the body. It's like there is an awareness that is the source of all creation. But because the perennial philosophy says so, that doesn't mean it's proved by science. But even the Buddha said, look, I'm going to say a bunch of things. Don't take it on face value and come and see for yourself. Exactly. It's really just to keep turning the attention to what's right here in the present moment and to what's experiencing what's here in the present moment. And to have the intention to do it with kindness makes it a lot easier. So for me, I get that there is this awareness that's beneath all of, you know, it's, I don't know if that kind of spatial positioning makes any sense, but I know I'm having thoughts and most of them are self-centered, but that if I dip below that level of discursivity, there's this pure awareness of whatever I can hear the sound of my own voice right now. I can see you involuntarily, right? There's this awareness that just undergirds whatever's happening in my mind. So I get that, but that that awareness is naturally tender, I get a little lost on. My experience is that when I'm not caught in fear and grasping, in other words, not identify with the self, then when awareness encounters something in that encounter, the natural response is a sense of we and a sense of care. Hmm. Connectivity. Exactly. It's everything's connected. Yeah. And there's some, if you look at the development of the species, if you look at human evolution, you know, our brains are designed to perceive separation. We're designed to experience a self in here and a world out there. And the primal mood of the separate self is fear. I mean, the fight, flight, freeze comes out of that. And so for millions of years, we were in these small groups and perceived other out there, you know, any group that wasn't part of our in-group was, you know, the enemy and bad and different and not as human as us. And in-group, there was growing sense of collaboration because that's one of our defining features. That went on for millions of years, and it's only been the last 10 or 20,000 years that we've expanded beyond kin relationships and felt a sense of we. But that's our trajectory. So this is actually what gives me hope, (laughs) is that, and I ask groups a lot, I say, do you believe that consciousness is evolving 
because I'm curious to see what people believe, but I feel like the consciousness in our species is, in, is evolving from a sense of separate I, completely self-centered and reacting out of the limbic fears to a sense of we that not only is collaborative, but actually cares, like you are part of me. I care about you, not because you're over there, but you're part of my heart. We're part of the same essence. And I think that's the direction we're going as a species, and meditation facilitates it because meditation awakens the parts of the brain that need to be integrated and awake. So it moves us from kind of our limbic hijack place where we're really in reactivity to where we can kind of go meta to what's happening, become mindful of it, and respond with compassion. And and there now is research that shows that meditation does wake up and integrate our brain in that way. And I, that gives me hope. You know, I'm looking at right now today, Dan, where we are in the news, like it's been so disturbing what's going on in our world. And you can see around the world how much the fear and the limbic hijacks happening. I mean, it's not just the United States with, you know, a tendency towards, you know, fear and right wing and, you know, that whole thing. It's, you know, many countries around the world now. And when humans don't face their fears, when they're run by them, we become incredibly dangerous. And so the only way out of tribalism really is training our hearts and minds. It is the way out. And I feel like we're doing, as individuals, we can kind of sense that, that we expand and become more able to care about each other And I feel like we need these kind of trainings brought into our group interactions, and they already are. This isn't, I mean, whether it's truth and reconciliation or restorative justice kind of activities or insight dialogue or whatever, there's all sorts of group modes. But to me, that's the hope, is changing consciousness that way. And um, that's what these practices do. Related to the question I asked you before about, you know, love being the source of all of who we are, you talk a lot in um, in the book about Buddha nature, that we are inherently awakened and loving, but it's obscured by the ego, the sense of self, the, you know, greed and aversion and all the stuff we also evolved for. And I have an instinct that that's true just based on my own personal experience, but I don't know if there's any evidence for it. As far as I know, there are at least two ways to think about this, probably more. There's the Buddha nature argument, which again, I don't know if there's any, you would know the evidence better than me because you're trained not only in the Buddhist tradition, but in psychotherapy. And then there's the two wolves idea that we have a wolf of greed and hatred and we have a wolf of sort of compassion and generosity and the one that wins in that fight is the one you feed so it'll give you a sense that you can train up the better angels of your nature take them to the gym as it were and then there's also then the christian view of original sin that we're actually no fundamentally that seems to be the spectrum you know either fundamentally good to it's a mix and it's what you train to fundamentally bad and we can only get to the good part by accessing god so I think I know where you are on that spectrum, but like, so what's your sense of where the evidence points? It's kind of what you asked before. It comes back to come and see for yourself that it wouldn't matter what belief system I have. 
and it, I'm not as interested in talking about a belief system. It, what is more primary? Is love more primary? I don't think that serves as much as saying, look, we've all had tastes of when we're more who we want to be. Everybody has. We know what it's like when we're caught and we act in ways that we regret and we know what it's like when we feel generous or kindly or creative or joyful. We just know and it's more we feel more at home with our being when we're more who we want to be. And there are ways of paying attention that can cultivate that. So I'm ultimately much more pragmatic. We could get off the air and I could talk about the cosmology, but I don't think that's as useful. I mean, my big inquiry, Dan, is how do we wake up caring more? I mean, our world's in trouble. How do we wake up caring? Because the more there's caring and a sense of it's all of us, the more we'll respond. So that's— Wake up in the morning caring or wake up the sense of caring that's inherent in every human being? Wake up the sense of caring in all of us. Yeah. How do we expand that? And how do we widen the circles of our caring? Because, as Einstein said, it's— generally pretty limited to those in our tribe. And that feels like the most compelling question for all of us. And it's if I'm hearing you correctly, you can have a metaphysical debate about what are we like at our core? Do we even have a core? Is there a Buddha nature? Are there two wolves? Is there original sin? Yeah, fine, we can get into that. Or you can ask yourself a very simple question. What feels better when you're a jerk or when you're not? Yeah, what feels more true or at home? Where do you feel most at home? What do you want? Who do you want to be? And we can be encouraged by the trajectory of evolution. I mean, I I loved reading Sapiens, and I love reading evolutionary psychology because it does show that we are not quite as much controlled by our limbic system. We have more choice. There is less violence in the world. And where we see it, it's very gripping and painful. And so how do we keep waking up from that. One of the things you also talk about in your book is, I think this is a quote, one of the most challenging blockers for us is the belief that there's something inherently wrong with ourselves. After my 360, I struggled a lot with the sense that I'm inherently selfish. Mm. I know you've talked about, I think this is a phrase you've used, the trance of unworthiness. So how universal do you think, because I, I was caught in this thinking of I'm actually uniquely selfish, which is total navel-gazing and getting caught in the self. How universal do you think this suspicion that there's something fundamentally wrong with us is? And how do we deal with it? I think it's super pervasive. I'm not an expert on cross-cultural comparisons, but everyone that I've worked with, and you know, I'm doing teacher training with people from 50 different countries and so on, everybody I've worked with, has that's an element of what people struggle with is some some sense of I'm not okay. Does it take many flavors? Like I'm inherently a bad person, or I'm inherently sort of not up to the job? Are there a bunch of permutations of yes, this? Yes, yeah. absolutely. Some it's like I'm fundamentally flawed, and it's disgusting and shameful. It's got those kind of twists to it: dismell, sh- you know, shame. For others, it's like the chronic never enough and the striving and the frustration, but it's not as deep a twist in the psyche. And I think that partly, you know, parenting, you know, it all comes from whether we had a basic sense of trust and belonging early on. And so our culture right off the bat is a setup for not belonging because to 
be part of anything, you have to meet these standards that are imposed by the culture, including have a certain kind of intelligence. I mean, we worship a certain kind of intelligence, and we have a huge percentage of our kids that go through school, and they don't have that kind of intelligence, and they come out feeling like they're stupid. Mm. And that is really, and that's, that really saddens me. Well, that's just one level. Then we have the kind of body a woman's supposed to have, or we have, you know, the, just basically looks, or we have the most insidious level of messaging from the culture, which is like racism, like this grouping of people is inferior. And that message gets sent through every institution to African Americans that you are less than, and that creates a huge, huge grip of something's wrong with me. So it's like Toni Morrison said, you know, to be American means being white. Everyone else has to hyphenate. Mm. So all our non-dominant populations on some level are getting the message less than. So we get messages through the culture. We get messages through our, our parents, be this way in order for me to love and respect you. And we come out of that shaping a self that we hope will get as much love and respect as we can, but in that process, underneath feeling like the who I really am is not okay. And for many of us, selfishness is the big one. I mean, that that for me is the big one. Really? I thought it was, I had a sense that that was a little bit more of a male thing. No, well, we're all androgynous in our own ways, but um, no, for me, it's the self-centeredness. It's has been a big one. And because it's... You don't come off as self-centered. Well, thank you. That really boosts, that boosts me. Okay. <laughs> my self-centeredness anyway. is swelling like crazy <laughs> right now. <laughs> right, that had the opposite effect. Yeah. Uh, so I'm so interested in that. You have some fundamental suspicion that, like, you're incurably selfish or self-centered? Well, I... Because I, I do. I know I that... This ego by nature is selfish. I mean, ego by nature is concerned with ego. So what I've come to peace with is that ego is not the exclusive identity of what I am. And so if I can hold it with humor and kindness, I'm okay. Right. I, I, I'll by the way, a, what I just said yeah. took decades. I got onto the spiritual path and I was um, joined a Kundalini yoga ashram and, you know, it had to be the most vigorous yoga around. And, you know, and I was one of these very vain yogis because back then I was super flexible and I, would, I was kind of like teaching it but showing it off. And, you know, I was very, I was up on myself. And of course, I have a, um, a genetic disease that now I can't do yoga at all because I'm my connective tissue is too loose, so it kind uh-huh. of swung on me, which was really interesting because I was so identified with being good at it. But then I got identified with being good at other things. So, you know, but all along I started realizing how much underneath I felt shame at my sense of importance or pride or self centeredness or whatever it was. And that's what got me to write Radical Acceptance was the sense of being stuck in a self I didn't like. And radical acceptance basically helped me see how it was a trance that most anybody that is identified with their self doesn't like their self. Now, they might sometimes be on an inflated self-importance thing, but underneath that, there's doubt and shame. So if we have an identity with self, we don't like that self. And a part of the spiritual path is seeing that 
trance of not liking ourselves and with wisdom and compassion opening to something larger. But transcending the self, really. Transcending the identity, but the way it happens is by bringing kindness to the very feelings of shame or self-dislike. We're back at N. We're back at N. Yeah, we keep... That's why, for me, Radical Compassion, the book, it just... It feels so central that any transformation we make requires cultivating a quality of self-kindness. Just to clarify for listeners, you wrote Radical Acceptance many years ago, and the new book is Radical Compassion. I just want to make sure people— Thank you. You should get them both. I— Just be clear, (laughs) one was first. Um, I have a phraseology that came to mind when talking about— this is my own phraseology, which you may not like given our differences, in terms of getting stuck in your own stuff— and how that can have so many deleterious effects internally and then externally. The way I've been kind of thinking about it in my head is the view is so much better when you pull your head out of your <laughs> You know, it's, yeah, that's yeah. just the way I think of it. But I love that. I love that because the other side of it is when we're turned on ourselves, it feels horrible. And the way that I end up working my way out of it is – I'll give you an example. I got sick in my uh, early 50s for about six years, and it was a spiral down. And I went from being athletic and, you know, very vigorous to, you know, really not knowing if there was a way out. I lost mobility. You know, I'm much, much better now. What was the, Can you say what the— It, it had to do with the connective tissue okay. disorder, where, but I just went into a spiral of pain and fatigue and— just it just uh yeah i just got worse and worse so i'm telling you this because i would go through all these i would feel miserable but then i'd get down on myself for being a bad patient like you know here i am irritable and i'm you know impatient and just being down on myself for the way i was dealing with illness and i would often go into what did i do to create this you know so i turned on myself and the way I started practicing, Dan, was I would see myself caught, and I'd kind of name it, recognize, and allow, okay, trance of unworthiness, shame. And I'd investigate it, and I'd feel just how um, painful it was to not only be physically miserable, but to be turned to myself. They call it the second arrow. You know, the first arrow is that I was feeling miserable. The second is I was blaming myself for it. And when I could get really in touch with how many moments I have suffered from being down on myself. And just, like, think of the landscape of your life and think of how many moments, instead of appreciating somebody else or the mystery of the night sky or whatever it is, there's been that self-oriented, down-on-self feeling. It's a real deprivation of life, moments. And so when I could get in that honest recognition of the suffering of being down on myself, that's when I'd start getting tender. That's when I could then say, oh, I'm sorry. I care about this suffering in some way. And that would be it. As soon as I could really directly contact the vulnerability and offer kindness, I was no longer living inside that bad self. But is there a like a schizoidal thing of offering – you said this before, you, a self can't offer – Kindness to a self, or I think you said something along those lines. How does that work? You, I'm saying I'm sorry to myself? In a way. 
what's happening is you've investigated and there's contact with the suffering. So awareness is contacting suffering. And awareness, and you kind of get enlarged when you can see something directly. And that's the whole power of mindfulness is once you recognize it, you're no longer as identified with it. You're resting in a larger awareness. And when awareness directly sees the suffering as suffering, not, well, I deserve this, or, well, you have it worse, but, ouch, this hurts. When awareness gets that, then there's a tenderness that emerges. And then when that tenderness is expressed, and you can just use the vehicle of words, oh, I care about this suffering, the I is really coming from a larger place. It's almost like awareness is offering care. And I often think ultimately when I'm meditating, one of the ways I kind of wake myself up is to say it's not like I'm meditating. Awareness is meditating. I mean, awareness is speaking right now. Awareness is experiencing this moment. But it feels like a self for a while. And in the vernacular, we say I'm offering myself kindness. But by that moment, the I is really resting in a larger space of awareness. This is, I think, one of these things that if it's confusing to you as a listener, it's um, it's just one of these things that becomes clearer. You're trying to add words onto an experience that is very hard to describe in words. And so you just have to kind of practice over time and you get start getting tastes of the type of thing you're describing. That's the right. The type of not thing you're describing. Well, what it is is that there's a sage that was once every people would bring him their troubles and he would swear them to secrecy and say, okay, I have just one question. And his question is, what are you unwilling to feel? And when we investigate and actually start to touch what we're unwilling to feel, touch into that vulnerability, directly contacting what we've been pulling away from actually frees us up. It's like when the resistance is gone, the demons are gone, you know. So there is more space, and it actually becomes more natural to offer care from that space. So you can actually feel it. So it's getting me thinking about part of your book has to do with uh, fear. You write about fear and bringing rain to fear. Um, And that leapt out at me because I've had panic attacks. Quite famously or infamously, I had one on television. um, But now I get them um, in elevators. So I've been walking a lot of flights of stairs recently because I had one, a bad one, about six months ago, and it kind of messed me up. And I was reading a book recently by a guy named Barry McDonough. It's called The Dare Response. Mm -hmm. He's got his own. uh, Mm -hmm. Dare is his reign. And I don't know if I'm going to be able to reproduce it, but part of his, I think the R is run toward it. Hmm. Uh, And I've been practicing this in elevators. His attitude, and I I think it might be a little bit at an uh, oblique angle from um, nurture, but his attitude with panic is say to yourself, bring it on. Do your worst. I'm going to count to 10 and see how, how... it's just going to be a set of sensations. You have a 100% track record of surviving panic attacks. So invite it in and turn the hunter, panic, fear, into the hunted. And I have found that to be, in my early explorations, really interesting. Tell me how it goes for you. Because it fits in with, I mean, a lot of desensitization modalities are just like that. You turn towards it, usually do it gradually, you know, ratchet it up. But it's like, you know, if a dog's running at you, whistle for it. You know, if it's, 
racing towards you. It's like in some way you're reversing your conditioning and the yes. conditioning has locked into place the panic. But it also picks up on, yes, what you just said. It also picks up on some things you've been saying throughout the course of this interview, which is it's like this unwillingness I've had to accept the discomfort. Yes. It's the fear of the fear. Yes. And reframing it as it's going to be a set of physical sensations that you've heretofore been unwilling to fully experience. But if you not only have a willingness to experience it, but you're inviting it in saying, come on, let's do this. If I'm going to have a panic attack, let me just feel it instead of feeling the tiniest little bit of it. And then it's spiraling out of control from there because I'm just unwilling to, I literally the other day I was in, I got stuck in an elevator in in my own building and I am not a strong person. You've met me. I'm not big. I was able to tear open the doors because I was that scared. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But what if I had just said, all right, well, let me feel this. It would have made it entirely different. But I guess my point in bringing all this up was, is that too aggressive, the attitude? The come on, bring it on, turning the hunter into the hunted rather than nurturing. First, I don't think of them as either or, and it's really case by case. For some people, that's exactly what's needed in some way to um, just fully inhabit your confidence and courage and just go at it is actually the energy that can undo the old conditioning. For another person, it could lead to a panic attack that would increase the feeling of trauma. So, And for many people, surrounding it with nurture, and nurture, again, can be something a message in, look, you've done it before. You can do it. You've got the, you know, it's the message that our heart and mind needs in the moment. And I think of the same thing with loving kindness, that there's not a loving kindness practice. It's whatever way we pay attention that in some way wakes up our heart, opens our heart, softens our heart, gives us courage. So for you, it sounds like it could be a real match. Yes, for this particular situation. Yeah, yeah. So another thing in your book is, and again, this is probably phraseology I wouldn't use, but um, nonetheless, it's meaningful to me, which is discovering your deepest longing. Can you talk about that? Yeah. One of the stories I tell in there is of a palliative caregiver who reported that the greatest regret of the dying was I didn't live true to myself. And in a way, that's not just the dying. I mean, it's like I think... I run into a lot of people that on some level are disappointed in their lives. They feel like they're skimming the surface, they're just batting away at the problems, but they're not arriving and really living according to who they know they can be. So that chapter on um, really discovering your true longing is that question kind of like if you're at the end of your life looking back, you know, what would really most matter? What would most matter today? What would most matter with you and I speaking here together, like really what would most matter. And so that we get aligned with what we care about and not hijacked by the habit of kind of chasing after immediate gratification or defending ourselves or avoiding what we're afraid of. So it's a very powerful inquiry. And in the Buddhist tradition, connecting with aspiration, connecting with what your heart really longs for is really what energizes on the path. It's what will have us stay with meditating because we'll remember it's not a discipline that's, you know, punishing or something. It's because we love 
waking up. We love truth. You know, we this fascination with what's real. I love love. You know, it's like remembering that keeps us so that our days are really aligned in a meaningful way. There's a section in the book about rain in relationships. How does that work? In the same way that rain helps us face and process and wake up through our own fears or hurts or whatever, because that's what it's really doing. It's it's having us be with the stuff we don't want to be with, but in a way so that we can find out, discover a larger sense of our own presence. Stuff comes up between people that needs the same attention. So, for instance, with my husband, with Jonathan. Who's sitting in the next Who happens to be listening right now. You know, we we have certain dynamics or patterns that we'll replay where we get stuck. And one of our practices is we'll do the timeout, the official timeout, where we each do rain inwardly in our own way, where we'll, you know, feel where we're caught, sense the beliefs that are going on, breathe with it, bring care to it, send, you know, just hold it ourselves so that we're not speaking out of a stuck place. And then when we start naming what's going on for us, it's without as much blame. The other person can hold it. There's more of a container for us to do it together. So if we're doing rain together, we might both be sitting together working inwardly, and then we can exchange what's going on in a way where we have a lot more resources. We have a a kind of a joke, which is the first person who can roll reverse wins. Mm. And what, what that means is it can really see it through the other person's eyes. They can say, I get why that hurt you. You know, I get why when I said it with that judgmental tone, that would have made you pull back and not want to do what I wanted to do, you know. So it brings empathy and compassion to do RAIN together. I feel like we could do a, a whole separate interview on this subject, which reminds me, you should come back more often. Oh, that's sweet, because I'm passionate about what we can do in relationships. And we started much earlier talking about RAIN partners. And again, this comes back to the state of the world, Dan, is that I feel like as long as we're living from fear or defense, we're going to keep on hurting each other as individuals and uh, globally. And learning to do these kind of practices with each other creates a sense of we that that then ripples out. And so Rain Partners is really powerful for that because then you can start moving through the world. And uh, one of my favorite lines, and this is from Ruby Sales. She's a civil rights activist, older woman, icon. And she has this phrase, where does it hurt? She brings it to white America, the white America that's most caught in the grip of racism and asking, where does it hurt? And she senses a kind of a, um, a sense of meaninglessness and spiritual pain in certain segments of white America. But moving through our lives and being able to see somebody who's in some way just see where does it hurt and one of the metaphors I love the most is if you imagine walking through the woods and seeing a, a dog who's by a tree and you go to pet the dog and the dog lurches at you, you know, like fangs bared and so on. And and then, you know, you, you get angry at the dog, but then you notice that the dog's paws in a trap mm. and then everything shifts and you don't necessarily go really near the dog because it might be dangerous, but your heart has shifted. Because you see that the dog's suffering. 
if we can learn to move through the world and when somebody acts in ways we don't like, instead of locking into our judgment, fight, flight, freeze, in some way ask, well, where does it hurt? The world would be a different place. Really would. Let me say one final thing. I've realized I've actually had some anxiety during this interview. I don't, and I, I th- mm. kind of landed on me midway through why it was. And I think it was that you described that I hurt your feelings, mm. and that made me feel bad. So I want to apologize for that. Wow. So I'm going to slow down here because well, mostly I feel touched, and I want to say thank you. Thank you for coming on the show. Yeah. No, it's, there's something beautiful about, like, I wasn't even going to go there. I wasn't going to bring up the past. And the fact that you did is modeling really what we've been talking about, which is to go, to, go into the elevator or go towards the dog that looks dangerous. You, you went right towards where it was most vulnerable, but in so doing, you created more connection. So thank you. Well, here's the beginning of an ongoing relationship, I hope. I'm on for it. Thank you. Final thing before we let you go. I want, we force all of our guests to shamelessly plug. Many of our guests don't like doing this, and I sense you're probably one of those people. But can you just list the books you've written, including the new one, and give us the name of your podcast and your website where we can learn more about you just so that we have it all? Okay. I told you I was— I had my selfish, self-important self, so I'm not actually minding at okay. all. <laughs> okay, great. No, in fact, I'd love to invite everybody to tarabrock.com, and uh, that's my website. And I have a weekly podcast that I give a talk Wednesday night in Washington, D.C. area. And you can download it from my website, or you can go onto Facebook and downstream and just become part of live stream, become part of the week, weekly event. So that's one thing. The books are Radical Acceptance, which was 2003, which is really how to really um, see the trance of unworthiness and wake up out of that. True Refuge, which was 2013, which is when I got really sick. And how do you find a way to face when life is most difficult and find peace and joy and freedom in the midst? And then most recently, Radical Compassion, just a few weeks ago, which is really learning to love ourselves and each other into healing. And it's really for the rippling out for our world. So those are the primary things to plug right now. We'll put links to all of this in the show notes. So if you didn't have a pen out, don't worry. It's right there on your phone. Thank you again for doing this. Thank you. Totally mine too. Thank you. Thank you again to Tara. That conversation was well worth reposting, I believe. Before I let you go, though, a quick announcement. We are on the lookout to hire a senior meditation producer to work on courses and other content for the 10% Happier app. This is a great opportunity if you're really into the Dharma and you also have some experience with curriculum design and content production. If you want to check it out or if you want to share this with somebody you know who you think might be a good fit, go to 10percent.com slash jobs. Of course, that link will be in the show notes. This show, by the way, is made by Samuel Johns, DJ Kashmir, Maria Wortel, and Jen Plant with audio engineering by Ultraviolet Audio. And as always, a big thank you to my guys from ABC News, Ryan Kessler and Josh Cohan. We'll see you all on Friday for a bonus. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus. 
in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com slash survey. I'm Shimol Yai, and I have a new podcast called The Competition. Every year, 50 high school senior girls compete in a massive scholarship competition. I wouldn't say I have an ego problem, but I'm extremely competitive. All of the competitors are used to being the best and the brightest, and they're all vying for a huge cash prize. This will probably be the most intense that you've ever gone through in your life. I remember that feeling because I was one of them. I lost. But now I'm coming back as a judge and also a kind of teen girl anthropologist. Because if you want to understand what it's like to be a young woman in America today, the competition's not a bad place to start. Hopefully no one will die on stage tonight. From Pineapple Street Studios and Wondery, this is The Competition. Follow The Competition on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Competition early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus. For more than two centuries, the White House has been the stage for some of the most dramatic scenes in American history. Inspired by the hit podcast American History Tellers, Wondery and William Morrow present the new book, The Hidden History of the White House. Each chapter will bring you inside the fierce power struggles, the world-altering decisions, and shocking scandals that have shaped our nation. You'll be there when the very foundations of the White House are laid in 1792, and you'll watch as the British burn it down in 1814. Then you'll hear the intimate conversations between FDR and Winston Churchill as they make plans to defeat Nazi forces in 1941. And you'll be in the Situation Room when President Barack Obama approves the raid to bring down the most infamous terrorist in American history. Pre-order The Hidden History of the White House now in hardcover or digital editions wherever you get your books.